filling. And well, Happy New Year. I hope you're enjoying the start of your 2019. If you're a guest with us today, my name is Jed, and it's a privilege to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff. If you were here last year, I could say last year, you got to hear Britt talk about baptism, and I would encourage you, if you have not already, to go online and check out that message. And we celebrated that this morning with Don and Dan and in second service. I can't wait to see who else gets into those waters. And so this morning, instead of is what may be happening in different places all around the United States, instead of talking about New Year's resolutions, uh, we're going to be talking about communion. And so I still think it's fitting that those two things can be spoken about in the same context because a resolution is something that you reflect upon so that as you move forward in the future, change can take place. It's a past, present, and future moment. And communion actually functions in that manner as well. In the present moment, we remember something in the past. Jesus is sacrificed, and we look forward into the future when he returns. Here's our first fill-in-the-blank if you have a note sheet. And I should uh, mention, like Britt did last week, there's a lot on that note sheet. It's the first time in my life there's a front and back. And uh, Britt had a front and back last week, too. And he, he told you about that. He also, by the way, was dressed in a nice sweater. He said he looked like a college professor. And so I thought this morning I'd look like a poor college student. So that's why I look this way. Here's your first fill-in-the-blank we don't do communion exactly as Jesus did, and that's terrible. No, no, no. We don't do communion exactly as Jesus did, and that's okay. We're going to start right there. We're going to admit right off the bat that there is no way that we today do communion exactly as Jesus did. And instead of arguing about whether or not that's wrong, we're going to admit that that's okay. That is what's happening. And if that's the case, I want to talk about the purpose of this morning and the purpose of studying the history of communion. See, instead of talking about what we're doing, we're going to talk about why. And so the purpose of studying the history of communion is so that you and I can rediscover Jesus' heart behind saying these words, do this in remembrance of me. I can remember sitting in these brown wooden pews as a six, seven, eight-year-old kid, and we actually had faded maroon cushions, kind of like these chairs in the worship center, and there were missing buttons on these cushions, kind of like the corduroy bear, because kids like me would fidget during this long service, and we would pull them out. And this small sanctuary called First Christian Church of National City, which was basically my second home, was lined with beautiful blue stained glass windows that pointed up to these wooden beams across the top. And from our place in the pews, not too far away was this table, this communion altar. And on it, in these big, bold, white words crafted by my grandfather, who was a carpenter, it said, do this in remembrance of me. And I can remember every single week sitting next to my grandmother as the communion meditation was being spoken and the ushers or the deacons or the elders, they would go off to the sides and this small silver plate with these bite-sized crackers that looked like I could feed them to my fish would be passed along. 
and I wasn't allowed to take communion yet, and so I'd take the platter and pass it to the next person. And then they would take these bigger silver trays that would require my skinny arms to use two hands, and I'd pass those along. And every now and then, my grandmother, she would hand me a Werther's to suck on, or she would just wink at me because we knew that within the next hour or so after the service had concluded, I could follow her into the church kitchen and I could sneak some of the Welch's grape juice and some of those crackers as well. So maybe that's why I felt guilty during that time. But several years later, after I, I was baptized, and in our tradition, we couldn't take communion until we were baptized. I can... In reflecting upon it now, I guess I could say that that weekly, repetitive ritual was doing something that I didn't realize. It was crafting in my brain these neurological highways that would lead me to this day to an incredibly deep appreciation for this sacrament that we call communion. Now, I need to confess something before you, because that's what you're supposed to do before communion. I had Austin, our stagehand, steal this juice from the kitchen. It's for uh, two Sundays from now. But I did tell Pam, who's in charge of communion, about that first. And I will purchase. Oh, boy. Oh, man. I didn't practice. I'll purchase another cranberry juice. What in the world? We don't use Welch's here? That just got me right now. Okay. Throwing me off here. I remember being a kid and hearing these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Every single time I partake of the wafer and I drink of the cup, it just brings me back to being a kid that remembers and was being taught about how significant this sacrament is. What I'd like to do today, however, and we just talked about earlier, instead of just talking about history, I, I hope that by the end of this message, we get closer to the heart of why Jesus would say those words, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say reenact it. He didn't give us particulars, and he didn't say you can't use a wafer, you're going to use a little cup 2,000 years from now. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So in your note sheet, you'll see that the front side, we're going to talk about the history as best as we can recommunicate it, because really historians can't completely agree on everything in history. We'll talk about what happened, and then on the back side, we'll talk about the heart behind communion, really how things perhaps went awry. So let's start here. I'm actually going to stand for a little bit because I'm going to use this stage to work as a timeline. I'm going to start here as far away, and then I'll move towards the left. And so on the cameras today, we're going to have to travel a little bit. 
So here's your first fill in the blank. What we knew, what we know, excuse me, as the Lord's Supper was a Jewish Passover meal. And we could honestly spend all of this Sunday morning talking about the parallels and comparing and contrasting this Passover meal to what we do now as communion. All three of the first Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, our synoptic Gospels, give this picture of Jesus and the disciples going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was closely tied to Passover, this thing that happened in the spring, which would commemorate in their particular histories that culminating tenth plague, which would proceed the Israelites being freed from a hundred, excuse me, several hundred years of slavery. And so there are many ways that Christians over the centuries have talked about the theological significance of Jesus taking the Lord's Supper in the midst of a Passover meal. But what we find here to be most significant is that Jesus isn't creating something out of nothing. Again, he is crafting a moment with these ordinary things, this bread and this wine, during this traditional festival so that disciples in the future would remember this new covenant, this new way at looking at what they thought things were. And if we were to move after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have this moment where Jesus breaks bread in Emmaus. At the end of Luke, you have this story where Jesus is walking along the road to this place called Emmaus with two disciples. They don't realize who he is. They're talking to him about how something has happened in the city. And then they go to Emmaus, and Jesus, he's explaining the Messiah and how he's going to suffer these things. He breaks bread with them, and suddenly their eyes are open. They realize that it's him. And that language of breaking bread takes us into what we have in Acts chapter 2. That breaking bread language is Eucharistic already. There are overtones of what we'll find is communion. What you see in the book of Acts beginning in chapter 2 is that the earliest disciples, the earliest believers are described as breaking bread in their homes daily within the context of a celebratory meal inside people's homes. Now, if you think about how different that is from what we do today, you just need to look at that. It's, it's obviously very different, yes? They were doing this every single day inside people's homes within the context of a full meal. In Acts 2.42, again, you've heard they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And what's so neat about the early church doing this is it began to evolve into this big celebration of potluck of sorts. And these communal meals that celebrated the Lord's Supper began to be called love feasts or agape meals by the early church. These were incredibly significant. It was a time where not only the sacrifice of Jesus was remembered, but they celebrated the community and the unity that was found in being purchased by the blood of Christ and this person who didn't just die but was raised from the dead. It was also a sweet thing because even the poor in the community could be taken care of at this time. As the church began to grow... In the late early and second century, 
we begin to see that the bread and cup begin to be separated from the agape meal. And by the 4th and 5th century, communion was, a, was solidified as a sacred religious ritual. In other words, we see it move from this time where it's a meal and they're celebrating together to now it becoming a religious sacrament, which is closer to what we do today. Which brings us to that final fill-in-the-blank on that side. Today, after thousands of years of intense theological debate, the Lord's Supper is observed and understood as a sacrament differently wherever you go. In other words, this timeline that we have doesn't really explain why things evolved, but things changed. And we do communion very differently, which is why I think it's important for us today, again, to not just talk about history, but to talk about what perhaps went wrong in the hearts of people over the centuries. So let's go back to this side. I don't think there's anything to complain about with what Jesus did, right? We're not going to find anything wrong in this space. So we can leave this part alone. Are we good with that? Are we okay? My son Titus, yesterday we were playing baseball, or he started t-ball, but this kid's good, right? He's got some skills, and so last night we, I was throwing him just some pop-ups in, in our living room, and he's three years old. He's turning four soon, and no three-year-old's supposed to be catching it, right? And so I'm just explaining to him, hey, as long as the ball hits the glove, you're okay. And so we've been doing this for a set amount of time. He's like, Dad, can any three-year-old do this? And I'm like, buddy, I don't think so, but, but don't worry. And he said, but can Jesus do this? I'm like, I'm pretty sure Jesus could do this, buddy. I should tell you, by the way, we were almost done. He's like, Daddy, five more chances. So I gave him five, didn't catch him. And he's like, Daddy, please, one more. And on the sixth one, I passed it up, turned his glove, caught it. Anyways, that's cool. So Jesus doesn't get anything wrong here. Okay. We're going to get into this Acts 2.42 section. And this is a passage of scripture that's beloved because when we think about the early church and we hear about this Acts church, we, we've heard so many times, let's get back to that, let's do that. But here is the problem with this space. And this is a play on words. The problem here is that they had everything in common. And you might be wondering, what's, what's the problem with these early believers having everything in common. Let me read this section again to you. Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temples, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. That's an incredibly beautiful picture, yes? And again, so many times we read this and we go, this is what we need to be. This is what's wrong with the church today. We don't operate in this manner. 
But when you study the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, you will realize that this description of the early church is so different because all the people there were essentially the same. In other words, what you find in the rest of Acts is as the church begins to grow, this Jewish community begins to extend so that people like you and I who may not have Jewish heritage in our blood can be a part of this new community. The underlying problem in your Bibles, in this New Testament, is that for so long, it seems as though the people of God were only to be exclusively together. But Jesus, and what he does is he invites everyone to come and be a part of who he is and what he is doing. And that's a problem. And that's why it's so difficult for the early church. They suddenly have people whom they were not accustomed to spending any time with inside their homes, sharing meals and breaking bread together. And, and when you see all of these one another's in the New Testament about loving one another and bearing with one another and being devoted to one another, the reason why it's so critical that those things are being spoken of over and over and over is because the early church these different people are struggling with how to get along. Does that make sense? And so even the earliest picture of the disciples breaking bread, the problem in that act scene is that up until that point, everyone was still the same. And Jesus was trying to break that mold to bring together a new humanity. Now, as we travel through to these agape meals, these love feasts, here's the problem. These communal meals expose that there were divisions in the community. And I talked about that briefly. Anytime you bring anyone together, you're probably going to have issues. People, we're really good at that. Now, I remember as a kid, in this 1 Corinthians passage, Having this moment in the service where, again, it was incredibly solemn, it was very serious, and we would hear about eating and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner. Have you heard about that? And the most consistent way that that was interpreted and the way it was passed forward for so long is that eating and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner could mean one of a few things. One, that you hadn't made it right with God, that you hadn't asked for forgiveness, that you were approaching the table kind of haphazardly and you weren't really considering and reflecting on the sacrifice of Jesus. And then the second way that would be, be talked about is you were doing this in an unworthy manner if you had not yet become a Christian. May I show you, however, within the context of 1 Corinthians, what the abuses really are in these Agape meals. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, it says this. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. Now in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? 
Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Pause there. Do you hear what's happening? They're having these meals where people are supposed to be coming together to celebrate and share. But there are socioeconomic disparities here. Again, the early church, it's this smorgasbord, this conglomerate of people who were not spending time before. And so now you have the rich and the poor who are supposed to be one body. And what we see happening in the Corinthian church is the richer members were eating their food before the poorer members could arrive. And not only that, they were getting drunk on the Welch's grapes, I mean the wine, <laughs> before those could come together and share a meal. And it's only after Paul talks about these evident problems that he goes into what we have made as liturgy, what I shared earlier, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. That's when we get that portion. So I hope you hear that when Paul is saying this, he's not saying, okay, that's what you're doing wrong, and pause, now I'm going to teach you how to solemnly read the scripture before you partake. It's all within the same thread. And immediately after he writes, and whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. He writes these words, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. So what's the problem here? What's the eating and drinking in an unworthy manner? What is it? It's that in the Corinthian church, there's a disregard for the others. You see, that that's the problem with these meals. That is what is taking place that Paul is writing to condemn. Let's move towards the first several hundred years in the church, where communion goes from this feast and this meal, this celebratory time, to the solemn, sacred ritual. We don't have all the time this morning, and maybe I've bored you with history, but again, the church has changed a lot. The church has gone from meeting in homes and then being persecuted from a small number of people to maybe a thousand or so by 40 AD to five to six million by the time Constantine is emperor and installs Christianity as the state of the religion. That is insanely rapid growth, right? A handful of disciples to a few thousand to five to six million within 300 years. It's pretty impressive. But what you'll find with growth is that it's accompanied by a need for leadership. And so we see in the church by the end of the first century these elders who are installed in the churches, and that's good. 
there are these men who are already seen as having the type of character needed to help shepherd these local small church communities. But at the turn of that first century and moving towards as Christianity is exploding, we see this thing that happens where these elders start getting to the point where one is chosen and selected and to operate as the bishop where this one elder becomes more important than the others. And then as the church continues to grow and religion and state are combined, these bishops begin to receive a type of power and status amongst the people, so it seems as though they are very far and separate. We even begin to have these terms like clergy and laity. This idea that there's a separation between those that ought to function as the ones in the community who are regarded highly and more spiritual, and those that are to be underneath their watch and care. And that's where we get this language of sacerdotes re-erected. Sacerdotes in Latin describes priests, and we see that these bishops begin to be called priests which ironically goes against what Peter would write, the one who papal tradition is, is drawn to in First Peter, and he talks about the priesthood of all believers. And so as these individuals are exalted into this sacred position, communion itself becomes a sacred and mysterious religious act, exclusively performed by a sacred individual. Now, I have deep respect for our Catholic tradition roots. I really do. There's no way to separate what we have here today from that. In fact, my mom was raised Catholic. And so in talking about this evolution and getting to this place, again, I hope you hear, there's, there's nothing in me that is slamming our traditional roots. But something happens when communion is taken from this ordinary, beautiful meal between people. And it becomes this thing where only a sacred individual can perform this ceremony. It's interesting. There's, there's a point, I think it's in the 4th century or so, when the priests begin to utter these words, hoc est corpus meum. And that's the point in the Mass where the elements are supposed to become the physical body and blood of Jesus. It is this mysterious, miraculous moment. Again, something only the sacred individual can perform. But I think what is missing there, sadly, is that the miraculous thing that Jesus did in the Lord's Supper with these believers is that instead of this transformational thing of these elements, he's the one that's able to transform communities of people that were not able to sit or be together. Let's go back to that beginning where I talked about Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. And let me pivot for a moment and talk about a game that I love called basketball. In 1891, Dr. James Naismith in Massachusetts, working as a physical education teacher in a college, was tasked with this challenge. They were experiencing a frigid New England weather, and apparently the boys in college were being boys and getting rowdy. 
And so he developed this game called basketball, where he took two peach baskets and he hung them up and he divided the boys into teams of nine and gave them a soccer ball and said the goal was to score on the other opponent's hoop, to shoot it into that basket. And as Dr. James Naismith describes, there's this wonderful interview, it's so funny, he he talks about how after he blew the whistle and the first game of basketball was deployed, it just became this roughhouse mess, right? They started fighting and wrestling. He didn't have many rules at the time. He says by the end of this first regulation, there were bloody noses, there were black eyes, and someone had even dislocated his shoulder. And so Dr. Naismith decided that he needed more rules He needed to enact more rules so that it wouldn't turn into this chaotic moment. And as you can see, the game of basketball, it's it's evolved a lot, yes? There are no longer nine guys on the side, right? There are teams of five. They're playing not with a soccer ball, but what we see as a basketball. Dr. Nason, by the way, one of his rules is you can't run, right? There's a lot of running now. The game has changed immensely. But when we think about basketball, we tend to not think about Dr. James Naismith because that's not what he was out to do. He wasn't out to create something where he would be remembered. He was doing something for those rowdy college boys. And so when we celebrate the game of basketball today, we can trace it back to him and be thankful for him, but we're not really thinking about him. That is the difference between what we do in communion, however. It's changed a lot. We do it in so many different ways, but at the core of this, we have Jesus who says, do this in what? Remembrance of who? Me. Do this in remembrance of me, not do it this way or that way. He's not saying, here are the rules, here how it can or cannot evolve. He does not do that. There's no way to trace back and say that Jesus absolutely said, these are the rules and it cannot change. He takes bread, he takes a cup of wine, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. How do you want to be remembered? When you think about your life and your legacy, how is it that you want people to reflect upon your existence and what you did here and how you lived. Because when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, I know for a a fact that he's not just talking about his sacrifice. He's talking about the whole of himself, the things that he did that would actually lead him to the place where he is going to be killed. Do this in remembrance of me. Here's how I remember Jesus. Around the table, you and I are invited to remember Jesus, whose heart was exemplified by those whom he shared the table with. There's this term called table fellowship, and the idea in table fellowship is that whom you eat with 
is so significant because in Jewish tradition, you had to be separate. The clean and the unclean could not be together. And throughout Jesus' ministry, what is so audacious about it, what is so countercultural, what so flies in the face of the religious is that he eats and drinks with sinners. Luke 5 29, then Levi gave him a banquet right after Jesus had said, come follow me. And there were a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And when you think even about the Lord's Supper, the first time it was given, around that same table table are all these disciples who all will desert him. In fact, one at that table who shares the bread and the cup with him will betray him to his death. And so when I remember Jesus and his sacrificial death, I think that you and I are called to also remember how he lived and subsequently calls you and I to live. You see, as much as I love what has become a sacrament, I'm not a holier individual than any of you. And Brit's not, and our elders aren't. See, there's not one person that enters into this building that contains this miraculous ability to take these common elements that Jesus says ought to have us remember him. Let me dispel it again. There's nothing magical here. There's nothing miraculous but Jesus. It's cranberry juice. It's not even Welch's. It's not wine. It's a small little cup. It's a little wafer. We're not breaking bread. The key, again, is to remember who? Jesus. And if you only remember Jesus for his death, then you miss his life that leads to his death and then his resurrection. You and I cannot partake of the table unless we remember the fact that Jesus was willing to sit with anyone at the table. If you and I want to eat and drink of this cup and partake of this bread in an unworthy manner, I would challenge us to consider the fact that we miss out on the heart of Jesus. If we do communion, again, as we've created in this sacrament, and say that only certain people can perform it or only certain people can partake it. Because what better way for us and for people who don't know the Lord to be invited to see the heart of Jesus than to come into a place like this with regular people seeing these songs and hearing these messages and breaking bread together. Let's pray.